Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Anna Klein, spelled C-L-Y-N-E, is a Grammy-nominated composer of acoustic and electroacoustic music. Described as a composer of uncommon gifts and unusual methods by the New York Times and as fearless by NPR, Klein is one of the most acclaimed and in-demand composers of her generation. Connecting her music across art forms with innovative collaborations with choreographers, visual artists, filmmakers, and musicians. Also the winner of the 2016 Hindemith Prize, Anna Klein is currently the Associate Composer for the Scottish Chamber Orchestra and has held composer residencies with the Chicago Symphony, Baltimore Symphony, and the National Orchestra of France. Some of Anna Klein's most amazing works that have been performed by the top orchestras, soloists, and conductors around the world include Dance for Cello and Orchestra, Night Fairy, Rewind, This Midnight Hour, Prince of Clouds, The Seamstress, Sound and Fury, and within her arms. Marin also upset it best by describing Anna's music as always emotional and driven by her heart and skillfully composed. Anna, it's so awesome to have you on One Symphony today. And I was so lucky to discover your music through Sound and Fury. And then of course, the treasure trove of all of your other amazing works. I just wanted to start by asking you about your influences. You started composing at the age of 10. Can you talk about any kind of influences, maybe playing instruments or musical influences or parental influences that helped to create you as a composer? Sure. Well, it started very early when I was seven. Some friends of my parents gave us a piano that had some randomly missing keys at the top. So as soon as I started learning, I would write compositions, avoiding those keys. But from the very beginning, it's been very much a collaborative hobby for lack of a better word for me so when I first started I would write pieces for myself and my friends to play so my first composition you know written down on paper was for flute and piano with my friend who played flute so we'd put on little concerts so that seed has really been followed through my career as as a composer I love collaborating Um, if I'm writing a piece for a specific musician I love that process of dialogue of sending them music getting their feedback or also expanding upon collaboration into other art fields. So I, as you mentioned, I love working with choreographers, filmmakers, and visual artists and bringing that into the creative process. So those collaborative components are very much a driving force. And in terms of musical influences, I love music that really connects with the physicality of sound and that you can really imagine movement to. So, you know, a great example is Stravinsky's Right, right The Right of Spring. As soon as I heard that live for the first time, it just 
shuddered right through me that you could really feel the physicality of the music. And then I, as a cellist, cello is my main instrument. So music that I love to return to is the music and on the piano too is Bach. And, you know, there's, you know, it's sort of crystalline music. There's no superfluous notes. Everything that's meant to be there. And, you know, with every, the counterpoint, the harmony is sort of the, the pinnacle of musical composition. So, um, that I very much go to. And then in terms of living composers, I love um, sometimes very reflective music like Arvo Pett. I love his piece Fratres. And it's really interesting to me to have music that can in exist in many different instrumentations. So that piece, for example, you know, exists in solo violin, violin and piano, um, cello ensemble, string orchestra with percussion. So that's, that's interesting to me. So yeah, there's some of my uh, musical influences and um, sort of environmental collaborative influences as a composer. When you saw Rite of Spring, was it in concert or was it the, the ballet? And how old were you when you experienced that? It was in concert. It was actually in Canada. I did my undergrad in Edinburgh University and it was a four-year program. And I did my third year as an exchange student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And the Toronto Symphony Orchestra came to the concert hall in the university. And actually at the time I was the music critic stroke reviewer for the Kingston Whig Standard, the local newspaper. So I would go to these concerts to see, you know, local and, you know, visiting ensembles. So I was and somewhere there's a review of it and I'm sure it uh, expresses the, the amazement of hearing that um, live for the first time. Um, but in terms, that was just the concert version. I did, uh, was very fortunate when I was living in Chicago back in, must've been about 2013, 2014, um, the Joffrey Ballet did a reconstruction of the original choreography with the live orchestra. So that was absolutely thrilling to sort of get a glimpse as to what it could have felt like to be in that first incarnation of this iconic work. talked about one of your main influences as being Arvo Pert. I'm very drawn to his music as well. And Fratress is for the, the violin strings and percussion version is something I conducted one of, my, one of the first pieces I worked with. And actually one of the first pieces I did was Cantus in Memory of Benjamin Britten. Um, so I, I have a deep love and affinity and connection um, to his voice. Uh, you were lucky enough to, to meet him and you showed him within your arms, um, which is an Im incredibly emotional piece and, and just so deeply and profoundly touching of yours. And he kind of talked about some things like about writer's block, but I really love how you expressed him saying, you have to learn to walk as a child again. Like every every step is a baby step and a new step. And then also the the secret to music being like in the in the small things and the connection between two notes or in like this third note that you write or the second note in the in the piece. Can you talk about uh, your relationship with with his music and how that's influenced um, your compositions over time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first piece of his that I heard was Fratres and it was on the radio when I was a student at Edinburgh and it just immediately caught my ear and was a, a gateway into his beautiful musical sound world and I've loved his music for many years and then back in I think it was about 2014 Carnegie Hall did a um, an evening celebrating his music that was actually organized by a dear friend of mine who I studied with at, um, at Manhattan School of Music just as a side note that was a very small program there was only five of us in the year for the master's program so we all became very close and um, he very kindly invited me to to come to this concert so I came to New York and had the opportunity to meet him after and just wanted to share something in return for all the music that had inspired me of his. So I shared a score and a recording of Within Her Arms, which I wrote back in 2008 upon losing my mother. So it's perhaps the most personal piece that I've, I've written. And I wasn't expecting to hear back from him, but just really wanted to share it with him. And to my amazement, I received this beautiful email um, from him I don't know, maybe a month or so later that he had listened to it and had been moved by the music. And in response to that, I was really having writer's block with a piece at the time. So I wrote back and asked if he had any 
guidance or suggestions as to how to navigate writer's block. And he wrote me this long email that was so poetic and it's something that I will always treasure. But as you said, he, he said about, um, you know, when something's really not working, it's like a, it's an alarm that you should listen to and take a break from it. And also like you were saying to, um, and he was saying that to, it's in the tiniest details that you, you know, that if it's just two or three notes, that these are the foundations of the work. And if that's not solid, like anything in life it, or like architectural things, it's going to sort of fall apart. So um, that was a really good reminder to be really thoughtful about what that original kernel of an idea is. Um, and then also to maintain that childlike curiosity to really want to explore and try new things. Um, so those inspiration, those uh, words of advice have been very meaningful uh, for me moving forward. And what was the piece that you had writer's block on at the time? Oh, it was the violin concerto, the seamstress. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. There's a lot of, you know, historical context to writing a concerto. And there's also very, a very lot of technical things to consider, especially like the balance between a soloist and an, or an orchestra. Actually, I just wrote a cello concerto a few years ago, and that was more of a challenge in that because the lower register of the cello to get that to cut across the orchestra was something to be very, uh, very mindful of. So but yeah, his, his advice has definitely stayed with me all this time. And didn't Dvorak say something about the voice of the cello is kind of roary and buzzy? And, and when he was contemplating that cello concerto um, after hearing the Victor Herbert cello concerto. Um, and, and I was interested in that because, of course, you have this, the seamstress and then you have dance, um, which is your newer cello concerto, which was written to coincide with the centenary of Elgar's cello concerto. And, and actually, I didn't know you were a cellist, but can you talk about kind of reconciling with these with these really longstanding forms and, of course, pieces? You know, there's the Elgar and the Dvorak cello concerto and, and a handful of violin concertos that are played all the time. Can you talk about just the undertaking for, uh, for yourself or, or any composer in 2021 to embark upon this challenge? Sure. I mean, some of them are just very technical challenges, like I spoke of the the balance issue, for example. And then I think as a composer to to not be limited by the historical weight, you know, I mean, these masterpieces behind you, um, but that you can really make it your own. So uh, the seamstress, which is the violin concerto and dance, which is the cello concerto, are two different approaches to form, although they have commonalities. So the seamstress is really one very long gesture, one very long movement of 20 to 25 minutes, but it does actually have sort of subdivided sections. So it's sort of five musical worlds that are threaded together by this sort of interlude music, um, but there's only one pause in the entire piece. Um, whereas dance, for example, is a multi-movement work. It's five, five minute movements. So in terms of form and structure, sort of approaching it similarly, but in dance, I wanted each movement to be very much self-contained, which is also an interesting approach because it means that, you know, a cellist could, you know, actually someone has done this is you could play just one movement and it would it would function as a piece of music or you could do a couple of them. Um, it also lends well to the age, the dig digital age of streaming, you know, where movements of symphonies or traditional concertos can get, you know, onto a shuffle playlist or um, you know, not always listen to in entirety or in sequential order. So um, I've actually found that to be quite interesting to follow dance and how the different tracks have, some have been more popular than others. You used for dance the words of the poet Rumi, who's one of the most celebratory and kind of life-affirming poets that I can think of and that other artists have incorporated into their art form. What made you choose to use that particular text from Rumi for dance? Yeah, well, it's a poem that I've always loved, but it's also a wonderful structural device. So whenever I'm starting a piece, I think about the form. I think whenever you get beyond a sort of five minute duration of a work, then the structure and the form become really critical in terms of the balance and the momentum. So um, something that I love about this poem is it's in five, it's basically five lines, which provided me with that five movement structure. So um, just to share the poem for your listeners is, a dance when you're broken open, dance when you've torn the bandage off, dance in the middle of the fighting, dance in your blood, dance when you're perfectly free. So you've got this very um, 
strong language and very evocative and for me creates very different musical sound world sort of implications so I was able to run with that and then of course each line starting with the word dance um, led to the title of the work which is dance. All of your music, at least that I'm familiar with, really has this literal connection, a programmatic connection to some text that you've found. Do you ever write in abstraction or is there always kind of some metaphorical or idea that you are starting with to take for inspiration? I think there's always some point of departure. I mean, just to riff on your word abstraction, I have a piece called Abstractions, which is actually an orchestral work in five movements. And that's inspired by five different pieces of contemporary art. So it's not literary inspiration, but it does respond to uh, visual art. So, you know, to give an example, the opening movement is called Marble Moon. And that's inspired by Sarah Van Der Beek's um, beautiful image. It's a it's sort of the size of maybe eight and a half by 11, or maybe a little larger that, than that, but that sort of size area. And it's split down the middle and one side of it is a pinhole photograph of the moon that she found in her grandfather's chest and then the other side of the image is light shining on the marble of Mount Vernon uh, which is in Baltimore and both have this these very soft sort of almost purple hues to them so it's a very gentle image and I love the nostalgia like the meet her personal meaning behind it the idea of light so that opening movement is very slowly unfolding with the harmonics shining through it and then that, um, for example, is in complete contrast to the second movement, um, Augries, which is inspired by a piece by Julie Moretto, um, which had, by contrast, a massive canvas with lots of energy, um, these fast lines, sort of a system on the verge of collapse, and that has these sort of ferocious descending scales in the strings and punches of sound in the brass. Those are two examples from abstractions of taking cues from a visual source of imagery and which is uh, not based on text or poetry or literature. You had mentioned in um, for the seamstress, there's one moment of silence. A couple of your more recent pieces have to do with the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth that orchestras, of course, were planning on celebrating all over the world. And then, and then of course it didn't work out exactly um, as, as we had hoped, but for me, somebody like Beethoven and, and even Haydn, who's, who you draw inspiration from for Sound and Fury, is a master at using silence. And composers of that era, I think, you know, utilize that. Even Haydn's one, one of his musical jokes, I think it's in Symphony 90, it's, it's a false ending, you know, where there's silence and the audience is expecting that it's over, but it, but it modulates and continues. Can you talk about that use of silence or your inspiration from uh, maybe Beethoven and Haydn from the Grossa Fugue in composing your stride and breathing statues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, silence can be incredibly loud given the context. And it's uh, something that I have to make a conscious effort to remember to do that. And um, especially, for example, if you're writing for strings, which are not wind instruments, you know, if you're writing for winds, you have to allow time for them to breathe. And um, I, I try and be mindful to bring that same quality of breath to stringed instruments. I mean, of course they could just play and play and play, but I think that's a really interesting element to bring into the music. So breathing statues, for example, actually also based on a Rilke poem where it's music, the breathing of statues, the silence of paintings. And um, that's where that title comes from. And uh, you mentioned the Grossa Fuga, it's actually uh, breathing statues is inspired, uh, takes inspiration from three quartets, the B flat major, the F major and the Grossa Fuga. And, 
there's um, a moment after this sort of ferocious beginning of the grasshopper where it just suddenly stops and you have, I forget actually the exact uh, chord progression, I think it's like E flat major or E major to C major, some different inversions, but anyway, there's, there's something about that moment where the music just stops and breathes and every time I listen to it, that moment, you know, in the context of all this turbulence, it's incredibly powerful. So in writing my piece, that's one of the elements that I took inspiration from and tried to have those moments of breath, of silence threaded throughout the piece. What are your thoughts on on uh, the Grosse Fugue, like, or just hearing, or when did you hear that for the first time, or, or even any other late Beethoven, especially like the quartets, or, or did you ever play any of them? I didn't. I mean, I'm a very amateur cellist. I never had the discipline to really practice. For some reason, I have the discipline to write music, but practicing the instrument was never one of them. So I would never have even been able to get anywhere close to playing the, the quartets. But um, actually, I was not that familiar with these pieces until this project. And um, as you mentioned, I actually was lucky to be invited to do three different Beethoven-inspired uh, pieces as part of the, the celebration of his 250th anniversary. And in cases of all of them, they were an opportunity for me to really take a deep dive into the, so for example, with breathing statues into the late quartets and finding the elements that sort of run, like similarities between them, differences between them. I forget the exact, I think it was the B flat major that the Grosse Fuga was originally the last movement for. Um, and then the, his editor said, oh, this is just awful. And he rewrote, um, was that the F major or B flat major? B flat, and he went... Um... He, when they were rehearsing, he went to the pub, you know, because he probably a lot of his first rehearsals were disastrous. And I think one of the, the cellists maybe came to check on him after the rehearsal and he just asked how the fugue went. That's all he cared about. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredibly difficult, but very powerful. And my first time hearing it live was the Calador Quartet. They programmed it on the same program as Breathing Statues. And they just, I mean, it was so thrilling to hear that live with such energy. played all over the world but you get to experience really you know Scottish British versus American classical music audiences are, are there any differences in, in how audiences how you observe audiences receiving music in general or your pieces in particular yeah well um I'm I was born in London I grew up grew up in Abingdon near Oxford and but I've been in the States for 20 almost 20 years now next year it'll be 20 years so I'm much more, um, have more experience with audiences in the States. Um, but I find them, you know, in the in the UK too, to be very open. And I think, yeah, both, I mean, in sort of big city hubs like New York and London, there's such a diverse range of all, music from all different genres. And I think there's a lot of cross-pollination between different styles. So I think people are pretty open and depends on the context in which you're hearing a piece of music. Like, you know, if it's a festival like the Bang on a Can marathon here, you know, you're going to get a real mix of, you know, really cutting edge new music, similar fe festivals like at the South Bank Centre or the Barbican. So I think audiences sort of gravitate to, you know, music that they're, they're particularly interested in. But there's also the, the context of how a contemporary piece is presented. So two examples of, of that for me, where I've had to write a piece that's very much for an occasion, um, was writing a short work to open the last night of the proms back in 2013 where they wanted very much an exuberant you know joyous piece so that's a piece called masquerade and then actually most recently this uh, just a couple of days ago actually on saturday um i wrote a piece to open the edinburgh international festival with the bbc symphony orchestra actually the same orchestra that premiered masquerade and that's a piece called pivot and similarly that's to you know they wanted a very celebratory you know piece to kickstart the festival and that piece draws on um some old Scottish folk music.
for symphonic programming, do you ever think about or have strong reactions to the, the other pieces on the program when your music is being performed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's so much exciting potential for orchestral programming because, you know, sometimes it'll be a more traditional concert with a contemporary piece, which can be really interesting for perhaps a more conservative audience that might, like in the case of myself, if I have a piece um, like Night Ferry, for example, which is, you know, 20 to 25 minute, you know, musical journey, if that were premiered with a, you know, a piece by Beethoven or a piece that's more familiar with an audience, it's, a, it's an opportunity for them to have a context in which to hear a new piece of music. Similarly, you could have a, you know, contemporary music enthusiasts come to hear a piece like Night Fairy and then get exposed perhaps to um, a Haydn piece or Mozart piece that they're not familiar with. So I love that having eclectic programming can bring different audiences together um, and al allow an opportunity for people to hear music that they might not have ordinarily sought out or have come across. So I think it can be really exciting and then also equally exciting to hear a program of all contemporary music, which is perhaps less common now, but I think orchestras are more excited about and sensitive to programming more contemporary music in general. So it's, it's a good time, I think. And speaking of pairing newer compositions with older works, I just wanted to ask you about Sound and Fury, which combines kind of the humor of Haydn with the bleakness of Macbeth. And I'm curious, because it's, as far as I know, it's the only piece that you have that's actually meant to be performed with another like more classical standard work. I'm curious, was that the idea of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra or was that your idea that you brought to them? And also combining those two dramatically oppositional, in my mind, um, creative and artistic forces, the, the, the tragedy of, of Shakespeare and the, and the humor of Haydn. Can you talk about how you decided to bring those two together? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Sound and Fury is actually a co-commission um, between Scottish Chamber Orchestra, where I'm currently associate composer, and then also Orchestra Lyon and the Hong Kong Sinfonietta. And the idea to draw inspiration specifically from Haydn's Il Distratto um, Symphony No. 60 came from Lyon because they knew that they wanted to perform that piece. And going back to what we were just previously talking about is programming, like how can you, um, for an audience, bring two works together, an old and a new. So I thought, you know, having pondered it, I initially thought, oh, gosh, not sure how I would approach that. But then thinking about it more, I thought, oh, this could be really interesting. And Haydn's Il Distratto is actually music that he had it's a repurposed from a theatre piece that he had worked on. So that got me thinking about theatricality and reflections on time, um, you know, having this big span of time between Il Distrato and Sound and Fury. But it was similar to the Beethoven. It was an opportunity to really spend a lot of time with, with the Haydn and, and to get to know that piece very, very well. And similarly to the process for the Beethoven-inspired pieces, I listened to the piece uh, many, many times, and it the Haydn is in six movements, and while Sound and Fury is in one movement, it has these six subsections that correlate to the Haydn. So for each movement of the Haydn, I would take a little, I would on a piece of paper jot down a melodic idea or a harmonic idea or a rhythmic idea or a conceptual idea and then spin those out through my own lens. So an example of that, actually perhaps the most literal moment of that is in the fifth section which um, corresponds to his adagio where he has this very slow chord progression and there's a couple of chords within it that I just melted each time I heard it so I, I wanted to hear it again and again and here I had an opportunity to hear it again and again by looping it myself so um, I took that harmonic progression and started in the low strings and gradually add the orchestra until we hear a delivery of um, Macbeth's iconic soliloquy um, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow uh, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Uh, jumping ahead, he says, um, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, and hence the title, Sound and Fury. So bringing these threads from these two great works of art, Haydn's Strato and Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yeah, and that Macbeth soliloquy is probably like one of the most bleak and most despairful moments in all of art that you can think of. Um, just this loss of everything. Um, and I'm very grateful actually, because I had known about, you know, the Haydn where 
Prince Esterhazy is sort of um, keeping the musicians around over the summer. So symphony number 45, Haydn asks his players to walk off at the end of the symphony and um, the surprise symphony, all these kind of musical jokes that abound in the over hundred symphonic works that Haydn has. But I had not heard of this, um, the musicians retuning, the violins retuning to F and six movements nonetheless. And so I'm very grateful that you are probably introducing it even to many conductors, I bet, um, the, the, the symphony. Um, but I'm curious also, and I love how you interweave all these different elements of the Haydn. And then there's some, the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. I'm wondering how that made its way in there. But but I'm curious, did um, did you omit the scordatura? I mean, kind of the, one of the most striking elements of the Haydn where the retuning happens. Um, did you omit that kind of purposefully? And it seems like the bleakness of of Shakespeare kind of demolishes Haydn's humor in your piece. Um, is that a is that a correct understanding? Yeah, I mean, as you said in the in the last minute, there's this sort of furious finale presto that grinds to a halt with this very comical retuning. And uh, as a side note, it's been very interesting to see how different orchestras have really played with that. Some of the conductors really really exaggerate that, and some let it sort of go more quickly. So that's been fun to see, but. Um, it's sort of, you know, as you said, the contrast between this bleak um, despair and this humor, sometimes looking at the same thing from a different angle reveals the flip side. So um, in that scordatura, it's almost like a miniature glissandi as they're, you know, detuning the string and then bring it back up to pitch. Um, so what I do in Sound of Fury is exaggerate that by having these glissandi that they're like sliding between one note and the other, which on strings is very easy to do, starting with small increments that gradually get wider and wider and wider. So they're more sort of furious. Um, so taking that very little kernel from Haydn, but then seeing it from a very different angle. Is that something that most audiences kind of notice? I mean, because it's to me, it's a glissando is subtle is a subtle difference between actually retuning the instrument. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important in a um, in a situation like this where you're asked to find inspiration from another work, I think it's important to really make it your own too. I think um, I wouldn't have wanted to be too, too literal, but what for me was interesting was to how to find these little elements, sort of micro uh, moments and really uh, expanding upon them and really sort of magnifying them through the instrumentation and through the, the orchestration. And just for my edification, can you talk about the, maybe it's obvious, but I'm, I'm not putting my finger on it. Can you talk about the incorporation of the interrupted intermezzo into Sound and Fury? Oh, remind me the interrupted intermezzo? Uh, the, the, sorry, the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. Uh, yeah, well, that's more sort of whimsical in my own imagination is, is I love the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. I'm so happy to have, I'm with them for three years. And one of the things I love about them is, you know, they're a chamber orchestra. And so there, you know, it's a lot of instruments on stage, but they have a quality of a chamber ensemble. They really communicate and have an intimacy that you don't often see. So um, I wanted this piece to really feature all of the instruments. So I was thinking of it like a miniature concerto for orchestra. So through the 15 minutes of the piece, all of the different instruments are highlighted in some ways, even percussion. It has a ferocious marimba part, which um, I'm always amazed people that off it's very fast and it really jumps around so I thought oh you know then the moment popped into my head from the Bartok and I thought why not it fits in the context of what we just heard and it's just a sort of fleeting moment but just a little nod to the concept of a concerto for orchestra In a lot of these composers, but I think all composers, the idea of recycling and borrowing from from oneself or from other composers, but but especially from oneself is a common thing like Bach or Haydn or Beethoven or Mozart, just kind of, they would repurpose things as they would need to. You had mentioned that a great lesson for you was that you write each piece fresh and anew and leaning back on older pieces, you said, could create lifeless music. Um, So I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts around the the art of musical borrowing or if you've done more of that as you've as, as you've matured as a composer yeah the the three uh, Beethoven works and the sound of fury taking the inspiration from the Haydn are the first times that I've I've done this so I've really enjoyed it and it's something that I I would be interested now to look to perhaps like for example the rite of spring you know that could be really interesting to take a few tiny moments and expand upon them 
Um, and I think they can be a great, they're a great learning tool to get to know another work very intimately and to see the structure, the harmonic language, the rhythmic language, but it's also can sort of shine a light back on your own craft and, you know, perhaps, ex you know, might see your own music in a new context. Um, but in terms of self-borrowing, I think coming back to the Arvo Pet, like taking a piece and um, rearranging it can be interesting too. So actually, the, the you mentioned Stride, which is influenced by the Sonata Patatique. It's a piece of string orchestra. Then Breathing Statues, which is for a string quartet inspired by the late quartets. Uh, the third piece I did of Beethoven-inspired works was a piece called Shorthand, which is inspired by the Kreutzer Sonata. And for that work, I got to know the you know the iconic violin and, and piano work and spent a lot of time with that, but then also um, getting to Janacek's string quartet that's inspired by the Kreutzer Sonata, actually it's called the Kreutzer Sonata. And then of course the Tolstoy from um, which the novella, the, the Kreutzer Sonata. In the, that, the first piece I wrote based on that was a piece called Shorthand for Solo Cello and String Quintet, which was premiered by the Knights, who are some of my favorite musicians to work with. So I love working with them and then um, but then I reimagined it for string orchestra and solo cello. So I got to hear the same piece of music, but with the two different instrumentations, I was able to do different things. So the smaller version has more of an intimacy and but then a much richer sound world with the string orchestra. So um, I guess that's not really borrowing, but reimagining as it were. <laughs> In um, 2013, you met a man on the streets of Chicago named Willie Barbie and recorded him singing A Wonderful Day, and you patched that in with some acoustic instruments, which is an incredibly moving you know, song, and how you set it is just so amazing. Did he ever hear that, or did you ever connect with him after to hear that recording? I did. I Yeah, I wrote that, as you said, while I was in Chicago, and I um, moved back to New York and worked on this recording. And when we recorded the material together, I re recorded him singing and also just chatting with him to learn about his history. And as you mentioned, weaving those together and then giving a gentle bed of sound for the Bang on a Can All-Stars as part of their project field recordings, where they invited composers to go out into the world and find field recordings and then incorporate that with the ensemble. But they went on to record it. So I actually went back and I met with Willie and I got him a uh, CD, a warp disc man and some headphones. And we sat together while he listened to it and he started weeping. Wow. <laughs> um, I think for me it was one of the most moving moments. And he said that he felt that the music had given him a voice and so, yeah, I've, I've lost touch with him, but royalties from that go to a shelter in Chicago. So in, maybe he'll be there at some, some point, but it's nice to have an opportunity to share um, in that way too. But it was a very moving experience.
him to your piece rewind and you talked about some feedback he gave you and i'm just kind of curious what that was and how you incorporated it into that into rewind yeah so um yeah i was a fellow at bang and can summer festival back in 2005 and he was the guest composer there and invited us to share our work and i shared rewind and similarly to to arvo pet to my surprise i got an email from him excuse me, a month or so later, and he gave some great advice about the bass and how to sort of make it, like, one of the things I asked about is how to make it feel a little off kilter, a little more unstable, so he gave me some great advice about the bass, and then also, I forget some other instrumentation, but also pointing out some things in his own music, like how you can take a, a small cell and, and really develop that, and of course, the idea of speech melody, which is, you know, if you slow down speech, you get these sort of internal melodies, um, which is something that I took on to the next piece I wrote, which is a piece called Steelworks, um, where I recorded some people in the Brooklyn Steelworks factory. And I think the piece opens with a with one of them saying that um, more buildings and structures are being built with steel now since 9-11. And throughout that piece, I gradually stretched that out to get these internal melodies. And that, actually, that's a piece dedicated to Steve Reich um, that takes that idea of speech melody into my own uh, musical vocabulary. amazing things that you've done in collaboration with your husband, Jody Elf, was to create this Ted the Head, which is a mannequin with microphones and cameras that can hear and transmit immersive audio and video. And it's perfect for the pandemic, but also I think just in general for composers who are working on other sides of the world to really feel like they're there. Is that still something that is being used? And has that gotten some traction in terms of orchestras with their relationships with composers? Yeah, I mean, it was especially during the pandemic, an incredible tool, obviously being sort of ground to a halt, I wasn't able to attend rehearsals. And, um, you know, if it's a well oiled piece that's been through like 10 performances, and you've tweaked it, you know, it's okay to go out in the world. But for a new piece, you really want to be present to be interactive in that rehearsal process. So an example of that is piece stride for string orchestra, which the US premiere was with the, the River Oak Chamber Orchestra in Houston. So we sent out Ted and um, as you mentioned, I would put on my headphones at home 
and with the binaural transmitting, I guess, experience from the hall, it is really incredible. You really feel like you're present in the hall. And then, of course, adding that with the 360 glasses, you really feel like you're there. And there's a speaker with Ted, so I'm able to communicate with the conductor. And then, of course, when he speaks back to me, I have the headphones. So it's, it's literally as if I'm in, in the hall and able to offer very nuanced feedback because the fidelity of the audio is so high. You can say, oh, could this be pianissimo rather than piano or you know, very subtle differences, which if you are on Zoom or Skype, for example, the quality of the audio is just not good enough to be able to make that those sort of comments. But yeah, we, now we're sort of very uh, slowly coming out of this pandemic situation and things are opening up. It's got a huge amount of potential because one of the things is it can bring audiences to the concert hall, you know, and it could be, I think one of the positive things we've taken away from the pandemic is that we've now opened up global audiences. You know, if you had a you know an orchestra that's just playing to their 1000 seated audience that's the limit of people that can experience it but with the live streams anyone around the world can experience that so with ted the head it has the potential for people all around the world with the investment of just like some goggles which are ten dollars for google cardboard to be able to tune into a concert and have that 360 sonic and visual experience so it's really exciting to see where it's going to uh, develop and is that something that orchestras can purchase somewhere purchasable yet but it's a sort of service as it were that can be that can be offered but we actually have three we have ted the head pat the head and fred the head because we had instances where we had three heads needed to be out at the same time but that was amazing um for example in that we i had a rehearsal with orlando philharmonic in the morning with one head that was with fred and in the afternoon with ted at uh, south bend indiana so I can be in two different states within a day, thanks to the, this uh, technology that Jody's been developing. Do you find over time that your expectations before you actually get in the rehearsal meet what you kind of planned, like what you, how you orchestrated the score, the dynamics, the balance? The more you compose over the last, you know, fifteen years or twenty years, that you aren't surprised by, you know, putting it in a live orchestral setting. Yeah, I think I think it's like anything, the more you do it, the more comfortable and confident you are with your tool set. So there's a lot of trial and error, like learning. And I think for me, I certainly learn as much or maybe even more from the mistakes, things that don't work than the things that do work. There are great tools for composers now. So I use uh, Finale, which is a notation program. There are Dorico and Sibelius, lots of other options. Um, but they do play back the file. The MIDI sounds are very crude, but they give you... I find it very useful for rhythm and, and pitch to get those two elements um, to really get a sense of going back what we we're saying about with Stravinsky, the physicality of the music, the, the pacing of it. I find that very helpful um, in terms of orchestration. That's more sort of in the imagination, sort of the next step in that process. But I do always try and do some things that I don't know how they're going to sound, I think. And again, they could not work and that's good. I learn about it or it could work and that's you know nice surprise. But um, I do try and try and keep elements experimental so I don't just keep regurgitating the same piece. Can you think of any like one or two uh, surprises that you've had like something that you've put on paper and then you got in the orchestra and it was totally unexpected? Sure well a good example of that actually is the very ending of Sound and Fury. It has a very sort of propelling uh, escalating getting louder and louder ending to it and my original ending was that I gave so as I mentioned, each of the six sections magnifies a, an element from the Haydn. And whenever I do this, like with the Beethoven and Haydn, I have an appendix that has very clearly what those quotations are. So, you know, if musicians are interested, they can see where it comes from. And it just sort of spells out that process a little bit more. But what I did is I gave that appendix to all the musicians and invited them to choose a cell and just sort of just loop it and do their own thing with it. Um, sort of imagining, you know, I, I imagine it would be this sort of mess of sound that can escalate and escalate and escalate. And it was it was it was interesting, but I, I also felt it didn't really work. So I actually changed the ending to be uh, to be orchestrated. So I tried to notate what I had hoped that that would evoke. But that was an example of just, you know, especially when I have the uh, opportunity to have a residency with an orchestra like the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, it's an opportunity to try things out and you know, be like, oh, that, that didn't work so well. But maybe if I was to do something like that in the future, I might approach it differently. So. Well, that's so amazing, Anna. It was such a great pleasure to speak with you and to get to know 
your thoughts behind your compositions. And uh, I'm just so fortunate to be able to have discovered your music, especially Sound and Fury. And I'm looking forward to programming and performing your music in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in One Symphony and thanks to Anna Klein for sharing her music and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible. Cornelius DeFalo and Amy Kaufman played tea leaves from the violin. Dance was performed by Inbal Segev and the London Philharmonic, conducted by Marin Alsop. Masquerade was performed by the BBC Symphony, conducted by Marin Alsop. A Wonderful Day was performed by Anna Klein and Willie Barbie from Bang on a Can All-Stars on the Cantaloupe Music Label. Rewind was performed by the BBC Symphony and Andre de Ritter. Stravinsky's Rite of Spring was performed by the London Symphony and Raphael Frubeck de Burgos. Beethoven's Grossa Fuga was performed by the Takács Quartet. Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra was played by the Hungarian State Symphony and Adam Fischer. You can check out Anna Klein's music online at annakline.com. That's A-N-N-A-C-L-Y-N-E.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. <laughs>